All right, you guys ready? Jesus is alive. All right, we're done. See you later. All right, we're going to go to Psalm 1. Um, just a couple announcements. One, we're in the park Wednesday nights. Um, this week we'll be starting the barbecue, so we'll bring the meat, dogs, hamburgers, um, buns, all that kind of stuff. If you guys just bring a side, and uh, we'll be worshiping. If it starts raining, we'll just call it worship in the rain, rather than church in the park, so that'll be good. Um, but we are going to be starting a new book today. So we spent about, I don't know, just over a year in, the, in, first, or in John, which was 21 chapters, now we're going to go through a book that has 150 chapters, okay? The book of Psalms, so we'll see how long that takes. We might, I might die before that we finish. Um, but uh, we're going to start off in Psalm 1, and um, I was actually going to do Psalm 1 and 2 because they do go together. But uh, with the introduction and the psalm, Psalm 1 itself, I figured it'd be a little too much to try to squeeze everything in there. And then by the time you guys would start getting antsy, I'd be trying to shove it all into your brains, and that just wouldn't work very well. So we're going to start off just in Psalm 1, which we, which we already read uh, with Nick. Um, so let me pray, and then we'll just we'll get into it. So Father, we again thank you. Again, I want to pray for the these guys who are going to go up and serve at Ijahaji, that you'd bless them, that you'd fill them with your spirit, Lord, that they would um, minister according to your word, not according to the dictates of any man or their own minds or anything like that, but by your word, Lord, and by your spirit. So please help them, be with them as they drive up there, keep them safe. Lord, I also pray that you'd be with us, and um, Lord, that you'd teach us, that we could commune with you through your word, through the book of Psalms, which are prayers and songs and hymns to you. So, uh, Father, I ask that you'd be with us, that you'd fill us with your spirit, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord. In your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so who authored the book of Psalms? Any takers? A lot of people. Um, so you got David. Most of them are by David. So so you have, sometimes you'll have a title to a psalm, like it'll say a psalm of David or a psalm of Asaph or Korah or something like that. Um, 73 of them are ascribed to David. And then you have the ones that are unnamed, like Psalms 1 and 2, which are most likely written by David as well. We know that Psalm 2 was because the book of Acts tells us it was. Um, Moses is the author of Psalm 90, so that's the oldest psalm, probably, in the book of Psalms. Um, Asaph composed 12. He-Man, I don't know if any of you guys ever watched the cartoon He-Man, but I have to pull that up. So he fought Skeletor, and uh, no, a guy named He-Man, his name in Hebrew is probably a little different, probably He-Man, you know, or something like that, I don't know. And then you have Ethan, he, well, He-Man wrote 88 psalms. Or Psalms one or Psalm eighty-eight. I'm sorry. Ethan wrote one Psalm. Sons of Korah wrote eleven, and King Solomon wrote two Psalms. So you got a got different authors there. Psalms means to strike with the lyre, not strike the lyre, but the strike the lyre, which is like a stringed instrument, kind of like a harp, small harp. Um, it also means to. Um, Praise with musical instruments. That's what the word psalms means, is to praise with musical instruments. So when we're reading these, we're actually reading songs. So you'll see 
Like um, when he says Selah, that means like a musical pause. Okay? And it's also a baby. There's a baby named Selah here. Um, I like what the Heritage Study Bible said. It says, it's the engagement of the whole soul of man in the worship of God. That's the purpose of the Psalms, to draw you in, to, to enlighten your soul so that you can praise the Lord. I think it's interesting that these are prayers and they're songs to the Lord, and yet they're inspired by the Lord. Right? They're inspired by the Lord. These prayers are inspired by the Lord. Well, that's an awesome thing. We can go in here. What would the Lord want us to pray? In different situations, because some of these have David's name on them. It also says when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. Like Psalm, Psalm 3, a Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. You have reasons that he's writing these psalms. And so we can look back and we can go to these psalms during times of crisis, during times of praise, during different times in our lives. And we can, we can pray through these psalms. And they enlighten our souls and they draw us in. Martin Luther, um, he said, it's, it's like a little Bible, the book of Psalms. He said, wherein everything contained in the entire Bible is beautifully and briefly comprehended and compacted. So it's kind of like the entire Bible just kind of fits into the book of Psalms in praise and prayer form. Um, let's see, Athanasius, he called it the epitome of the Bible. Kind of, it's that centerpiece, everything's contained in it, just like Martin Luther said. Um, Psalms teach us the attributes, the perfection, the praises of God different things. They teach us correct anthropology, which is the study of man. And they show us how wicked we are. John Calvin said, it is an, an, ad, an autonomy of all parts of the soul, for no one will discover in himself a single feeling whereof the image is not reflected in this mirror. So the feelings that we have, the emotions that we have, we can look to the Psalms. These psalmists had the same feelings. And there's, um, most importantly, though, though, I think the Psalms teach us to pray and to praise the Lord. And they also show us Christ. They show us who Jesus is, right? In Psalm 2, we're going to see, even in Psalm 1 here, but I'm not going to give it away yet. But there are five books in the Psalms. So how many books are in the Bible total? 66. You're wrong! Yes, there's 66, but if you count all five books of Psalms, there's 70. So, is 66 a biblical number? If you had one more six, then yeah, maybe, but that's not a good number, right? But, you, but 70 is. Seven is the number of completion. You have 70 tens. Yeah. So, how many, people, um, how many people had to be a part of the Sanhedrin? 70. You know, 70 ruling elders. Um, so, it's, it's kind of neat. There's actually 70 books in the Bible. There's, these are broken up. So, um, book one is Psalms 1 through 41. Book two is 42 to 72. Book three is 73 to 89. Book four is 90 to 106. And book five is 107 to 150. And these are marked in your Bible. So you'll see this is the ending of book one or this is the start of book two or something like that. But I think the Psalms is kind of like the centerpiece for the believer Okay, not for the unbeliever, but for the believer. Because if prayer is like breathing, Psalms is, Psalm is kind of like that center place where we go and we commune with the Lord. 
So as I was praying, I was initially going to go through 1 Corinthians. I had taught through Psalm 42 a couple weeks ago. And I just kind of saw the need for us to commune with the Lord. My wife asked me, is it just because the Psalms are easier to teach? So I said, no. How dare would you think? Why would you think that? But um, I just really, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just really want to commune with the Lord. I want us to commune with the Lord as a church. So as we're going through the Psalms, sometimes we'll do one Psalm. Sometimes we might do five of them in a single Sunday because some of them are pretty short. I was, like I said, I was going to do Psalms 1 and 2, but as I was looking, I was like, I'll just, we'll be exhausted by the time we leave here. So let's start off. So it said, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. So literally it could be, oh, bless, oh the blessedness of the man. Oh, the blessedness of the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, or stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. Oh, the blessedness of that man. So first off, blessed, blessed means, could mean, it's, it's more than happy, joyful, fulfilled, fulfilled, you want a fulfilled life, you're going to be blessed. No? What do we think when we think blessed? I was just so blessed today. I was so blessed by that new car I just bought and the new house. You know, no, that's that. That's great. You know, and that is a blessing. But it's more than that. It's more than the material. It's more than this physical world. Can I be blessed and have cancer? Yes, in the Lord I can. Can I be blessed and go through horrendous trials? Yes, in Christ, in Jesus. Because who's the man? Who's the man that it's talking about here? Blessed is the man. In Hebrew, it's ha-ish, the man. Okay? If you were to, um, well, first off, it's singular, it's definite, and it's in the masculine. Okay? Blessed is the man. Newer translations of the Bible have begun to become gender neutral. So like the new NIV, new International Standard Version, the newer version of it, they've redone it. That's now gender inclusive. So it says, blessed is the one. Or the um, new, it's a brand new Bible that just came out, the Christian Standard Bible. I was a big fan of its predecessor, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Pretty accurate, it had some weird quirks to it, so not a lot of people used it. They got rid of those quirks, but then they damaged it by making it gender inclusive. So it says, blessed is the one, or blessed is the person, or something like that. But what are they taking away? Because we would think, well, yeah, that's true. Blessed, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're a male or female. If you don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sit or stand in the way of the um, sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful, you're going to be blessed, right? Both man and woman. But what are we missing when we take that out? We're missing Jesus. We're missing Jesus when you say blessed is the one, blessed is the person. Because who is the supreme blessed man to walk the face of the earth? Who never, ever, even once walked in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stood in the path of sinners, nor sat in the seat of the scornful. But his delight was in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditated day and night. Jesus, 
He is the only one to fulfill that and live up to that perfectly. He's the only one that's truly blessed. So when we come to Jesus, we are blessed, right? We are blessed in him. Our blessedness is imputed to us through Christ, right? So when you take that out, you are doing damage to the scriptures. So I would stick with the New King James Version, which is the one we read, the New American Standard, the ESV, or the Old King James. As far as I know, those were the only Bibles that really keep to the integrity of the scriptures. Okay? They're, they're trustworthy translations. But so if we follow Jesus, if our life is bound in him, if we are hidden in him, what are we? We're blessed. Oh, the blessedness of the man who walks in Jesus. Now, what will disqualify? So let's bring it down to us. What would disqualify that blessedness? We're told to walk in the the counsel of the ungodly. What's the counsel of the ungodly? The newest pop song that just came out. You know? philosophies of the world, ungodly philosophies, materialism. Well, I mean, so, so what does the world try to push on us, like especially in America? You have to have this, you have to have this, you have to have this if you want this. Do you really want that? It's ungodly what they're trying to get you to want, even. So it's the counsel of the ungodly. I used to give ungodly counsel all the time. I lived for it. I wanted to be the best sinner in the place. You know? So I was telling the younger guys how they could go out and get drunk, do stupid stuff, whatever. You know? It's the counsel of the ungodly. How about the godless teaching of this world? This is one of the reasons why my wife and I have decided to homeschool our children. Because what are they going to get in school? They're going to get ungodly counsel. And praise God that we're able to do this right now. Actually, we're not. We have to sacrifice for it, you know. But when they go to school, what are they going to, what's going to be poured into their minds? Number one, ungodly counsel from the teachers. Two, ungodly counsel from their friends, their peers. You know. And I find that doing more of a homeschool curriculum, the, the, the reading, everything is brought to a higher level. Everything. Every single part of it. The books Daisha has to read, I never got to read when I was a kid in school. Even though some of them are ungodly books. But guess what we get to do? We get to come alongside her. We get to walk with her through this. We get to read those same books. Fall asleep with our face in them probably. You know? I'm sure someone will be boring or someone we won't understand or something like that, but we get to give godly counsel. I want my kids to have godly counsel. Not the godless teaching of this world, the mottos, the cliches, the songs of this world. One of the things my wife does, she, she makes the girls, like my daughter will have a friend in the car, she'll make the girls tell them what that song was about. They want to listen to Godless music, 
you're going to tell me what it's about, and how does it glorify God? You know, and one of, and she gets embarrassed, you know, a little bit because I would too, you know. Oh, great, mom's preaching again. <laughs> but one of her friends, though, I love it. It's inspiring, you know. The kids love it. Her friends love it. They don't get that where where they live a lot of times. It's awesome. But we want godly counsel, but not to walk in it. Not to walk in the ungodly counsel. And then stand in their path. You stand in the way of the sinner. What did Jesus say? The way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go therein. But the way is narrow, pressing, difficult. That's what that Greek word means. That leads to life. And there are few who are going through that way. Few. Why? Because it's pressing. It's difficult. You can go in through the way of destruction any way you want. You can go in through Buddha, through Allah, through just being an atheist. You can go through any way you want. But there's only one way to heaven. There's only one way to truth, and that's through Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but by him. And it is difficult. Why? Because our flesh does not want to go in there. Our flesh wants to wiggle it's way out of there. Because it's pressing, it's hard. Our flesh does want to do whatever it wants to do. And so we don't want to stand in that path. And then you sit. To sit, dwell, remain, abide. That's what that Hebrew word means. And the seat of the scornful. To scorn, to make mouths out, to talk arrogantly, to boast, to scorn, to mock, to deride. That's what it is to scorn. And scorning is against God. It's against his law. It's against his word. It's against his person. This world scorns and mocks God. Right? I remember last year, Buffalo Bill days, people scorning us when we have signs that say Jesus on them. And we're giving out water, and of course that turned into holy water. You know, and they're saying disgusting things about our holy water and making fun of it. They're scorning. Our government scorned God's law when it made marriage between anybody. Man and man, woman and woman. didn't matter. People scorned God in his creation when they say, I can transition from a male into a female. How about us, the church of the living God? Do we scorn? I would submit to you we do. We probably don't catch it all the time. But it comes from our pride, our arrogance. Some of us, it's just in sin. If you're sitting in the seat of the scornful, you may be sitting at your computer. You may be sitting there looking at your phone, looking at pornography. That is scorning God and his creation, scorning marriage, scorning the beauty of sex. How about if we look at another Christian group and we scorn them? Oh, they're wacky. You know, we're scorning them. I do it. I've done it. You know, and then I, you know, acquit myself by saying, "Well, they're not really Christians, anyways." You know, and then I meet one. I'm like, "Oh shoot." <laughs> maybe you are you just don't kind of line up with us you know I thought you were wacky but you know and maybe they are a little bit but aren't we 
I remember that when we did go to, my wife and I went to a conference, there was a Mennonite lady there. And um, some kind of Amish looking, you know, dressed in, she had a bonnet on and stuff. And, um, and I'm thinking, that's just weird, you know. I was scorning her. How dare I? Wonder if she, that's the way she praises the Lord, and she does it with a pure heart. She does it with a pure heart, out of her love for God. Out of her love for the gospel. Out of her love for her brothers, whom she doesn't want to stumble by wearing the clothes that we usually see. How dare I scorn her, scorning one of God's people, judging her. What's that? Oh, what's that verse? Not to judge hypocritically? Judge not lest ye be judged? That's what that means. Okay, it's like not, it's not don't judge at all. We're allowed to judge. I can judge evil and I can judge good. Right? But hypocritical judgment, that is not allowed for the Christian. That is forsaken by, for the Christian. I was judging with hypocritical judgment. Maybe somebody's judging me because I'm preaching in a hat. You know, there's a lot of people who would come into a church and say, the preacher was preaching with a hat on. You know, but you know what? I, I, I didn't have time to comb my hair. I'm sorry. <laughs> and yes, I'm going bald. Yeah. I've got, it's called alopecia. So I've got like a big chunk of hair missing out of the back of my head over here. One over here, but my chin, which had a little spot, is actually growing back. And the skin turned back to an, its normal color. I'm really happy about that. <laughs> so maybe this will grow in too. So I have to keep it long. That means I have to comb it. I can't buzz it like I used to because yeah, you guys get the picture. <laughs> but so there's a progression. Walk, stand, sit. Walking in the counsel of the ungodly, sitting or standing in the path of sinners, sitting in the seat of the scornful. It's a progression. You're walking along, and all of a sudden you start listening to the ungodly. Then you stand there, and you begin joining their rallies against God. And then you sit as the disciple of the scorner. You sit as a disciple. It's a, it's a progression. But the blessed man, he does not walk in those things. He does not stand in that path. He does not sit in that seat. Right? What does he do instead? Verse 2. But his delight, you put in pleasure, his longing, is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He meditates day and night. So first off, the law of the Lord, the, the word law there is the word Torah. You guys probably all heard that. Torah. It means law. It means more than law, though. It's the revelation of God. It, it would contain the entire Bible. It's God's word. What would your best friends say your delight is in? What would your children say that you delight in the most? What would your wife or your husband say you delight in the most? You know? I'd probably say, you know... If I asked my wife, or my wife asked me that, I would say, well, me, honey, of course. No, I would have to say, tell her the truth. 
What is, what do you delight in? Is it God's word? What would the people around you, the closest people around you say is your greatest delight? Is it God's word? Do you long to hear your shepherd's voice? Do you long to know God? To know who he is, to walk with him, to know what he desires of you? To know what he desires of you? Think of it this way. I mean, we, some of us have a hard time reading our Bibles. Because maybe it takes a long time. Maybe it just seems like, man, I'm just not a very good reader. Who knows? We all probably have different excuses or different reasons. Or maybe we don't like to read the Bible as much as we should. I know when I first became a Christian, my greatest joy was to read the Bible. I just couldn't wait. I'd get home from, remember when you're like a little kid and your parents get a new puppy and you just can't wait to run home and see that puppy? That's how I was with God's word. I just couldn't wait to get home and read it, to crack it open. I'm still like that, but there is some, sometimes there is some drudgery in it. You know, you're reading along, you're going through Genesis, and then you go to Exodus, you're like, this is awesome, and then you start seeing, you know, some other things, and then you get to Leviticus, and you're like, um, okay. You get to Numbers, and you're like, okay, so-and-so had this many children, this tribe had this many people, okay, why do I need to know this, you know? But it's the revelation of God. And I do know that hard work isn't always easy. Things that are worth it aren't always easy and fun. You know, if you want to get stronger, what are you going to do? You're going to go to the weight room and you're going to inflict pain on yourself, but you're going to reap the benefits. You're going to reap the benefits of health, of strength. You know, running that five miles, training for a half marathon or something, it's painful. Right? And there is exercise that's not good for you, but your heart's going to get stronger. Your muscles are going to get stronger. You know, hopefully you'll have a better quality of life because of that. The Bible is like exercising. Sometimes there are, there are hard parts. Other times it's like, Lord, you're just speaking to me. And, and sometimes you're just waiting for the Lord to speak to you. So you're reading through Leviticus. You're reading through Numbers. You're reading through these other things. And you're just waiting to hear your shepherd's voice. And then you hear it. And it's like, oh, God, you are so good. You're so faithful. You spoke to me through that. You spoke to me through that. How awesome. How glorious is that? How beautiful. He could take one word, and it's like lightning into my soul. I long for those times. I long for them. But we read it also to get ready to be with our Lord forever and ever and ever. Because eternity for us, for the believer, we're already, in, we're already in eternity. We've already received eternal life. We already have a relationship with God. You know, Death kind of gets rid of that veil of this world, though. And, and so think about it. Imagine if you live in a little apartment. And it's kind of ugly, you know. You got a whole bunch of people smoking weed around you, doing all this stuff. <laughs> you know, but, but you have all this stuff and you start buying stuff, but you, 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 
you realize somebody's given you a house, a huge house, a beautiful house. You go there, you tour it, you look at it, you know, they're not allowed to move in yet. And you start thinking, would you, well, would you start thinking this? Well, I'm going to decorate my little apartment. It's going to be so beautiful. I'm only going to be there another month, but I'm just going to decorate it. I'm going to pour a bunch of money into it. I'm going to build it up. I don't even own it. I just rent. You know, I don't even really live there. I'm just a sojourner through there. Would you, would you do that? Would you spend all your money and all your time dressing up your little apartment when you have this huge mansion that you're going to move into? In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go there to prepare a place for you, and if I go there to prepare a place for you, for you, I will return, take you to myself, and where I am there you shall be also. We spend so much time in this life. We should be thinking about the life that's to come. Living in light of eternity. Living in light of what's forever. This, what does the Bible call this life? A vapor? Appears for a little while. It's like a puff of smoke. You know, or on a cold winter day, you breathe out, and then it just disperses. You see it for a split second in your breath, and then it's gone. That's what our life is like here compared to eternity. We have a few years on this life. Are we going to pour everything we have into this life, or are we going to pour everything we have into the life to come? Are we going to be working for rewards here or rewards there? Think of it this way, and if you're a soldier for the Lord, think of a soldier on a battlefield. You think that soldier's on that battlefield, shots being fired past him, his friends dying, blood everywhere, mud, pain, and him thinking, oh, I just wish I could stay on this battlefield forever. No, he's longing to go home. He's longing to go, to get out of there. If we are pouring our lives out here, shouldn't we long to go to be with the Lord? Maybe that's our problem. Maybe we don't pour our lives out here. Maybe we spend too much time preserving our lives here. Self-preservation is the enemy of the Christian life. It's the enemy of the Christian life. Preserving our comforts, our reputations, we're to be living sacrifices. I'm not saying you go out and just, you know, die. Maybe somebody's called to do that. But we're called to be a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable act of worship. It says in Romans 12. Or it can be like pigs playing in the mud. Or maybe we're more like prodigals, like the prodigal son. Just, Father, give me my inheritance now. I'm going to go out and I'm going to spend it all on this life, on my flesh now. Or we can look to the Lord. We can read. We can meditate on his word day and night. We say, Lord, what do you want me to do? You bought me. 
You bought me. I'm yours. You paid for my life with your precious blood. Listen to what God told Joshua in Joshua 1.8. And I think that this is where David gets this psalm from. God's talking to Joshua and he says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have great, good success. Now he's got a job. He's supposed to take Israel into the promised land. Right? What's our job? Anybody know? What is our job as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you every day till the end of the age. That's our job. That's our calling. Don't let the book of the law depart from your mouth. Don't let the revelation of God depart from you. Let's go on. Verse 3. So the one who meditates on God's law day and night, he's going to be like something. So here's an illustration that David gives by the Holy Spirit. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does, he shall prosper. So the man who meditates on the word of God day and night is like a tree, right? His roots are deep because of why? because of rivers of water. And literally, this is channels or canals of water. I believe that it means more of kind of a man-made, like a farmer would bring water to a tree that he's planted. Isn't that awesome? What do we we thirst for? We thirst for Jesus. And anybody who comes to Jesus will never thirst. Will never thirst. You know that, and if it has those channels of water, what, what happens is the roots go deep and wide. It gives that tree a good, sure foundation. I remember I was at work a while ago, and uh, there's these trees we were supposed to cut down, and I was thinking, you know, these are really shallow-rooted trees. I don't even know what kind of trees they are. And so I just started yanking on it and started moving. You could see the ground popping up and just ripped it right down, you know. It wasn't hard at all, because it wasn't planted very well. Its roots, roots weren't deep and wide. It was shallow. But the one who meditates on God's word day and night, your roots are going to go deep. A bulldozer won't be able to take you down. And look what it says whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does, oh, I'm sorry, that brings forth its fruit in season. Okay, brings forth, I think that's a lot like the Christian life. It's kind of like, okay, Lord, I want to produce fruit for you. I want to produce fruit for you. I want to produce fruit for you. And then all of a sudden, the Lord does it. He does it through his word, by his spirit. He just does it. We don't know when that's going to happen. We don't know what it's going to look like a lot of times. Sometimes it's simple things. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. You know? But then the fruit of our works, our labors, and stuff like that too. 
And then it says, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. So it's always the season for this tree. It doesn't matter if it's winter, if it's fall, if it's spring, if it's summer. And we think, well, I don't know why trees lose their leaves in the fall. Is it because of dryness? Is it, I, I have no clue. I don't even want to know. Because it would probably take too long to explain. You can tell me afterwards. <laughs> Russell probably knows. Do you know? Kind of? I've never really looked it up, so I don't know. But just think about it. No matter how scorching the heat is, no matter how dry it is, no matter how um, cold the winter is, and the life of a person like this, their leaf doesn't fade. It doesn't wither. It's always the season for this tree to be adorned with leaves. And what do you do with trees? Don't you love in the summer when you come out here and you can get some shade under a tree? It's really hot and the sun's just beating on your head. You feel like you're going to have a heat stroke and you get under that tree and it's like, oh man, it feels so good. Or in the rain, you know, we're out here in the park a lot and sometimes it rains and there's not always enough room underneath our, our easy ups. So we can get under trees and they guard us. Trees with leaves are useful. You can shade other believers. You can be a landmark for Christ, for those for unbelievers. How many times have you looked for a tree when you're driving because then you know when to turn? But for that person, it doesn't matter what season it is. Verse 4, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff. Hold on, let me go back. It says, and whatever he does shall prosper. I'm thinking, Lord, I don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. I meditate on your law day and night, but not everything I does is prosperous. At least not in the way I think. You know, maybe you're thinking that. I thought that for about a minute, and I was like, yeah, I probably, you know, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. My Christianity isn't perfect. My faith isn't perfect. My righteousness is far, far from perfect. You know, so maybe there's a reason why my everything I do doesn't prosper. And what does that mean? Let's put it this way. Can you imagine working, going to work every day and thinking about what the Bible says about work and doing it? Do you think you would fail at your job? No. You might not be the most skilled person there, but you're going to have integrity. You're going to work hard. You're going to work as unto the Lord. You're going to glorify him. How about in our marriages? If we live according to the word of God, both the husband and wife, If you live exactly according to the word of God, do you think you're going to have problems in marriage? Do you think you're going to end up divorced? No. If both people forgive perfectly the way the Bible tells us to, 
If neither one grows bitter against the other, like the Bible tells us not to, if I dwell with my wife with understanding like the Bible tells me to do, if she respects me the way the Bible tells her to respect me, if I love her the way the Bible tells me to love her sacrificially as Christ loved the church, could our marriage possibly fail? No. If we live according to his word, we will prosper. If we build his church according to his word, not according to church growth program, church growth programs and stuff like that. It's, it may not ever grow huge or something like that, but I tell you what, we are going to be fed. We're going to go out and be fruitful Christians. We're going to love each other. We're going to look out for each other. We're going to pray for each other. That's going to prosper. Verse 4 says, The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. So the ungodly are not like that tree that's firmly planted. They're like chaff. Chaff is kind of like the husk around a piece of wheat. You know? And what they would do in ancient times, they would take a huge threshing stone, and they'd put it on the ground, and they would have a donkey or an ox or something pull it around on this this wheat and chaff, and it would separate the wheat from the chaff because it would crush it and, the, and it would be separated. And then the farmer, whoever it is, they would come by, take a pitchfork or a big shovel or something, pick it up, throw it up in the air, and the wind would drive the chaff away. It'd blow it away because it's light. There's no substance to it. The wind would catch it. But the grain's heavy and it would just fall back down to the ground. So after you keep doing that, all you have left is wheat, separating the chaff from the wheat. Chaff is useless. It's good for nothing. Right? But to be blown out, to be driven from the wheat. The wheat, what, what do you do with wheat? Well, first you make Wheaties. <laughs> you also, you make bread. And as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking bread. How many time does this, times in the New Testament, in the Gospels, does it say Jesus looked up to heaven, he broke the bread, and he blessed it? He broke the bread and he blessed it. The, the, the ungodly, they're like the chaff that the wind drives away. The believer, the godly person who, de- who meditates on God's word day and night, he is like the wheat, right, that you use to make bread. Bread is life-sustaining. We can't live without food, you know. And then what does the Lord do? He breaks us, and he blesses us, and he divides us up, and he gives us out. I want to be broken bread for the Lord. Man, woe to me when I want to wiggle off the altar to get out of that sacrifice. I want to be broken for the Lord. I want to be useful to him, because you can't be used by him until you're broken. You can't be. You can't be until you're dependent, dependent upon only him. When you say, there's nothing in my flesh that I'm going to bring anymore to his table, it's all spirit. It's all my reliance upon him. Are you willing to be broken for him? Are you willing to be broken? Because he broke it and then he blessed it. 
Right? He didn't just bless it. It was broken. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Right? James 1. Consider it all joy when you fall into various trials. Is God sovereign over those trials? Is he active and alive in your life? Then you can trust him in those trials. Whether it's finances, your heart, living situation, a relational situation, no matter what it is, God is good. Verse 5. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. Nor sinners, he's talking about the, the first one, the ungodly, the sinner, the scoffer. He will not stand. They're going to be thrown down, cast down in the judgment. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. 1 John 4.17 says that because of the love of God, we will have boldness in the day of judgment. We'll have boldness in the day of judgment. We're going to stand in the day of judgment. Believers are. All those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, that he died for you, that God loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son to die for you, to take your place under God's wrath, right? Because God's judgment has already been placed on Jesus. It's already been placed on him for you and for me. And so when we stand before God, the judge of all the earth, we're going to stand. And he is the one who makes us to stand. Now, I want you to go to Revelation chapter 20 because the ungodly are not so, but I think Revelation 20 shows both. So, last book in your Bible. Revelation chapter 20. Starting in verse 4, it says, And I saw thrones. So this is at the thousand-year reign of Christ, when he sets up his kingdom on the earth. I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for, the, for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So that's talking about tribulation saints. I believe that we will already be with Christ because of the rapture of the church, that resurrection, when we are called up to be with him, to be with him forever. Look at verse 7. So it says, over such the second death has no power. The second death is a bad thing. Okay? 
Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So that's a pretty quick battle. The devil who deceived them was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So they're cast into the lake of fire. Now look at this, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So, are we living in light of this day? You, you, you're going to do one or two things in this life. You're going to either live in the shadow of the day of judgment. Shadow, it's looming over you. It's going to swallow you up whole, fearfully, living in the shadow of it, maybe ignorantly. Or you will live in light of the judgment. We get to live in light of the judgment. Because our judgment's different. We'll read about it here in a second. Actually, let's go ahead. Romans 4, verses 10 through 13. Romans 14. So right after the book of Acts, right before 1 Corinthians... Romans 14, verse 10, it says, Why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? That we just kind of read about, you know, or talked about, you know, being a scorn, being scornful. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We shall, he's talking about Christians. For we should all, shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And this is a different word for judgment seat. It's bema seat. It says, for, as it is, for it is written, as I says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall on our brother's way. So we're all going to stand before the judgment seat, every single one of us. And we're going to give an account for the way we lived our life here. Now go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I've done it almost every single funeral I've done just about. Because I think it gives so much hope. I love where it says that mortality may be swallowed up by life. You know, so when you're doing a funeral for a believer, you give them this great hope that mortality has been swallowed up, not by death, 
not by the grave, but by life, by life itself. So in verse 8, it says, we are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. We're, we're confident and well-pleased to go to be with the Lord, right? We're well-pleased to be with him. We're not sitting there just, you know, waiting for the judgment. <laughs> you know, I hope I don't go after Paul. I might be thinking that, you know. He says, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So look how he encourages them. We're, we're excited to go with the Lord. We're excited to be with him. We're well-pleased. And so we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him while we're in this, in this body, in this life. We want to be well-pleasing to the Lord. And everything we do, we're doing it for him. We raise our kids for him. We love our wives for him. We love our husbands for him. I don't love my husband. I love my wife. Just, I know that's kind of shaky anymore. You know, but we want to be well-pleasing to him. And then it says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And that is literally bema seat. Bema seat. And it was in the, in the games during chariot races or something like that. You'd go to the Bema Seat Judgment to receive your crown, to receive your reward. But we also will give an account for the way we lived here. It says, um, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord... So there is fear in it. We are excited to go be with the Lord. We know what he has done for us. He has taken away all our sins, and we will not be judged according to our sins, but we will be judged according to our faithfulness, what the Lord has given us. It says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we evangelize. We tell people, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, right? But we are well known to God and I also trust are well known in your consciences. Now turn to Luke chapter 12. We'll end with this. Luke chapter 12. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Verse 35 It says, verse 35, Luke 12, it says, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. When it says, let your waist be girded, like, be ready. Be ready for action. You know, don't be in your, in your pajamas. <laughs> Have your belt on, your sword on your belt, whatever you need. It's going to go on your belt, right? Be ready for action. And let your lamps be burning. And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master, and when um, he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are all those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you, that he will gird himself and have them sit down and eat, and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch, or come in the third watch, and find them so, blessed are those servants." 
You know, blessed are those servants. They're ready. Their waists are girded. I think, I think what he's saying, these are guarding the house. They're going to open the door for the bridegroom and let him come in to take his bride. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have, he would have watched, not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable to us or to all the people? The Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his master will make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant who his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and an hour when he is not aware and he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself to do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. So do you know what the Lord wants you to do? And are you doing it in light of the judgment? You have been bought by the precious blood of Christ. And you are precious to him. He has set you apart as his. You belong to him. He loves you dearly and fervently. And so how much more should we serve him out of love? I'm not saying we should all sit here and be terrified because of a judgment. We should be to some degree. But to know that it's out of love. We are family. We are sons of God. What if we're in Christ Jesus? But for a lot of us, I think eternity is going to be not quite as happy as it could be. Not quite as blessed as it could be. Because we're too caught up in this world. We're decorating our apartment we're decorating our apartment when we have a mansion been prepared by Jesus Christ to look forward to. And to gather up treasures for that. To be rich towards God. And all that we do, rather than being selfish and self-seeking and trying to preserve our lives here, And how does that work out? Because we're all thinking, okay, what do I need to do different? At least we should be. Well, for number one, pray. Pray, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then pray that he would enable you to do it. All right? Pray that he would enable you to do it. I can do nothing on my own. Even Jesus said that. I can do nothing on my own, but only what I see the Father doing. I want to be enabled to enact his will, to do it. Two, meditate on his word day and night. Meditate on it. Meditate, I mean, study it. Think about it. Ponder it. And I forgot to tell you guys something. The 
the Hebrew word for meditate is Hagah. Everybody say it with me. Okay, one, two, three. Hagah. More phlegm. Ha. Okay, Hagah. And what it is, it's a, is it an automatopoeia or something like that? When you say something, that means like a sound. So if I was to sit down in front of a big sticker, Hagah, you know, like I'm growling, roaring over. It's translated roaring in some other places in the Bible. Or to muse over, to groan. It could mean to groan, too. Here, the thought is of a cow or an animal. Choose the cud. You know, you eat something, you take it down in your stomach, you throw it back up again, you chew on it some more, you take it back down. That's how, yeah, that is gross. <laughs> For us humans, I guess cows like that type of thing, you know. But... That's what you do with the Word of God. You read it. Maybe you pull it back out. You write down some notes about it or something like that. You think about it some more throughout the day. You read it. You think about it some more. You go about your day. You think about it some more. You're constantly bringing it back up in your mind. You know, how am I going to live this out? What does it mean? You know, observation, interpretation, and application. All right. Three good ways to study your Bible. You observe what it says. You interpret what it says according to the rest of what it says, according to the context. And then you, how do I do this? How do I live it out? Is it something I need to believe? Is it something I need to pray? Is it something I need to do? Is it something I need to not do? You know, but meditate over it day and night. And be ready to do it. I love Ezra. Ezra described the book of Ezra. I think it's chapter 10, verse 10. He said, he studied the law of the Lord. He did it, and he taught statues and ordinances in Israel. He studied it, and he did it, and he taught it. You know? That's the kind of man I want to be. I want to study his word, I want to do his word, and I want to teach it. But if I just study it, don't do it, and teach it, that's sad. I'm just a talking head. And sometimes I don't live perfectly according to even my preaching to the Word of God. But I'm committed to it. We should all be committed to it. Amen? Let's pray. So, Father, we again thank you.